from South Africa last week to East Africa this week. Uh, we are from Kenya. My name is Isabel Onyango. I'm here with my daughter. We are privileged to call TCC home, and uh, we are also privileged to read the sermon this morning. I'm going to read in Swahili. She will read it in English. She's called Nicole Ongara. She will start. Thank you. Hebrews 1, 5-14. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son. Today I've come before, today I've become your father, or again I will be his father, and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits, and his servants flames of fire. But about the son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed. You remain, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies, enemies' footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Kwa maana ni malaika yupi ambaye wakati wote mungu alipata kumuambia. Wewe ni mwanangu, leo mimi nimekuzaa, au tena, mimi nitakuwa baba yake, nae atakuwa mwanangu. Tena, mungu letapo mzaliwa wake kwa wakwanza, ulimwengu anasema, malaika wote wa mungu na wa mshujudu. Anenapo kuhusu malaika asema, kuwafanya malaika wake kuwa pepo, watumishi wake kuwa miali ya moto lakini kwa habari za mwana asema kiti chako cha enzi e Mungu kitadumu milele na milele nayo haki itakuwa fimbo ya utawala ya ufalme wako umependa haki na kuchukia uovu kwa hiyo Mungu Mungu wako amekuweka juu ya wenzako kwa kukupaka mafuta ya furaha pia asema hapo mwanzo e bwana uliweka misingi ya dunia nazo mbingu ni kazi ya mikono yako hizo zitatoweka lakini wewe utadumu zote zitachakaa kama vazi utazikunguta kunguta kama joho nazo zitachakaa kama vazi lakini wewe hubadiliki Nayo miaka yako haikomi kamwe. Je, ni kwa malaika yupi ambaye Mungu amepata kumwambia wakati wowote, keti mkono wangu wa kuume hadi nitakapo waweka adui zako chini ya miguu yako. Je, malaika wote si roho watumikao waliotumwa kuwahudumia wale watakao ridhi wokovu? Neno la Bwana the word of the, the, word of the lord
Thank you so much, Isabella. Thank you so much. That was beautiful. Thank you for sharing that with us. Good morning. Well, it's always such a joy to be with you here today. I'm actually always with you on Sunday mornings, but if you don't recognize me, it's because I spend all of my time upstairs with the littlest disciples of this church. Um, My whole heart runs up the stairs every Sunday morning when those kids are dismissed. So my name is Jenna Hyron, and I am your family director here at TCC. So I spend a lot of time with your kids, who are very honest. So I happen to know that pretty much all of us are trying to eat healthier this year. I know. Yes, I know. And I can speak for all of your children that they're already tired of all the vegetables that you're trying to feed them. It's okay. There's something about entering the new year that really makes us think long-term, isn't there? Like there's something about going home at the end of December, it's the turn of the calendar, and we take a look back at the year and we think about all of the things that we want to focus on for the new year. And having just consumed copious amounts of festive meals and sweet treats, um, we've gathered around the table with our family and friends, it makes sense that healthy eating would be high on the priority list. So what do we do? We purge those leftover sweets gone, right? We fill our pantries with very expensive, organic, wholesome foods, and we stock the refrigerator with that fresh produce. We even allocate a few extra minutes every morning to getting up a little bit earlier so we can wash and slice and dice and cut all that fresh produce. We pack our own lunches and we prep our dinners and voila, we're on the road to health, right? And it's totally worth it because we know that the research is outstanding that when we eat healthier and we watch our weight and we're upping our fitness, this can lead to massive long-term health benefits that could improve our well-being for years to come. But then, all of a sudden, it's February. February is the worst February is the New Year's resolution killer. It's cold, it's dark, all the joys of Christmas festivities have been forgotten, and now we're just hangry because we've been eating all those bright colors for four weeks. Not to mention that all of those health benefits that we're going to reap years down the road, yeah, none of them have happened yet. So February is the worst Now, I know you all like to hear about what I talk about with the kids, so I thought that I would share with you some of their New Year's resolutions. So let's just remember together that they have absolutely no idea of long-term gain and really the passage of time in general. Okay, so here's some of my favorites. I'm going to convince my parents to get a dog. Good. I'm going to stop eating vegetables this year. Okay, good, yeah. I'm going to figure out how to quit school, get a real job, get some money and some stuff. Good. I'm going to become a pilot. To which I said, oh, like like this year? Like you're going to do that this year? Yeah, and I'm going to get my own plane. Dad just told me I had to ask Grandma. (laughs) These are your kids, not mine. Now, New Year's resolutions are wonderful, right? They ground us in what's important. They lift us out of our present-day reality to think bigger, long-term, to create vision for our lives. 
And so in today's scripture passage, we're going to do just that. Today, I'm so privileged to be walking into our second week of a series in Hebrews called Greater Than, where we grasp hold of this truth of our salvation and deliverance in Jesus. Hebrews is an epistle written by an anonymous author who boldly lays out the supremacy of Jesus Christ above all other authorities on earth and in heaven. It was written to an audience that needed a strong reminder of the long-term rewards that awaited them as they patiently endured suffering and persecution. The author of Hebrews calls us to look beyond our present circumstances, the challenges and realities of today, to hold fast to the truth of Christ's reign and the hope of his coming kingdom on earth. So this morning, I'm so looking forward to exploring this passage of scripture with you. And in order to do this well, we're going to be covering some ground together. So the first thing we're going to do here is we're going to spend some time exploring who the angels are and what purpose they serve in God's story. We're going to put aside our modern Hollywood versions in order to better read and understand this passage within the greater context of scripture. Then we're going to use that better understanding of angels to discover how Jesus is superior. There are seven Old Testament references that are laid out in our passage today that we're going to give us a grand picture of the superiority of Jesus above the angels. And finally, we're going to find ourselves, humanity, within this context of Jesus and the angels. So ultimately, we're going to be addressing three big questions this morning. Who are the angels? Who then is Jesus? And finally, what then does that say about us, humans? So we're going to get started. So if you have your Bible, you can open your Bible with me today, and we're going to start in Hebrews chapter 1, and verse 4 gives us a bit of a summary of today's passage, telling us that the Son is superior to the angels, and his name is superior to theirs. Now, even though the name Jesus isn't specifically mentioned anywhere in chapter 1, we can confidently say that the Son being referred to here is Jesus, based on the references in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in the life of Jesus. So we're reading together that Jesus is superior to the angels, his name is superior to theirs, and that's where we're starting today. So before we do anything else, we need to spend some time talking about angels. And with Christmas so close behind us, I was especially excited about the reference to angels. Every Christmas, We're so joyfully reminded of the presence of these heavenly beings that have been in the midst of humanity since the fall of creation. This passage that compares Jesus to angels invites us to dig deeper and be reminded of who these heavenly beings are and the purpose that they have in God's story. So those are the questions we're going to look at. Through scripture, we understand that God exists in a spiritual realm that has several different spiritual beings that exist in that realm with him. Angels are only one of those mentioned heavenly beings. So you might consider your own study of spiritual beings like the seraphim or the divine council or the cherubim that could fuel your imagination and help you paint a picture of the reality in which humans exist, but also the reality of what coexists with us. Praiseworthy Bible scholars and teachers, Tim Mackey and John Collins of the Bible Project, would be a great place for you to explore this topic. 
Today, I'd like to just focus on angels so that together we can navigate the comparison that this passage makes to who Jesus is, the Son, in relation to who the angels are. So what do we know about angels? Well, I had to chuckle when one of the very first things that Tim Mackey points out is that there's no reference that says angels have wings. Now, on behalf of children's ministers everywhere, I'm going to tell you this truth, but then I wouldn't mind if you just sort of forgot about it, because how could we ever abandon our cute little kids and their wings and their halos every single Christmas since the dawn of time? No, I'm not ready to get rid of that. You probably aren't either. So we're just going to move on, and then we're going to let all of our children's ministers sleep soundly tonight. So the truth is that it's pretty unlikely that angels have wings. It seems that most often... They appear in the form of men or humans when they're ministering on earth. So you could look at Genesis chapter 18 verse 2 as an example when Abraham is visited by three men who are described in verse 1 as the Lord. Tim Mackey reminds us that like all spiritual beings, angels are not God. Angels are a reflection of God's glory, and they exist to do the will of God. And specifically, we see angels fulfilling this purpose in two ways. The first way is that angels serve God is by reaching out to his people, who cannot enter God's presence because of his holiness and his righteousness. And these angels reach out to his people and bring messages from God. The word angel actually means messenger. Bringing us back to the Christmas story, we see angels appear three times announcing the coming of Christ. The first angel appears to Zechariah in Luke chapter 111. I have these references for you. Announcing that Elizabeth will give birth to John, who will proclaim the coming kingdom of God. And then the angel Gabriel appears to Mary in chapter 1 verse 28 announcing that Mary's going to give birth to Jesus. And finally, an angel appears to Joseph in a dream. Now we're in Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, encouraging Joseph that Mary has truly been made pregnant through the Holy Spirit and will give birth to Jesus. So, angels fulfill their purpose of reflecting God's glory by being his messengers. Secondly, angels also bring glory to God by carrying out God's instructions to provide for and rescue his people. Memorable events like this happen in Genesis chapter 19, verse 16, where angels grasp hold of the hand of Lot and lead him and his family safely away from the sin-laden city of Sodom that's about to be destroyed. Or in Acts chapter 12, verse 7, where the angels appear... They seem to give Peter a whack, and then his chains fall to the ground, and he's set free. So, secondly, angels act on behalf of God to provide for and rescue his people. Angels exist in Scripture from the first book to the last book of the Bible. As early as Genesis chapter 3, we're introduced to the serpent, who's a fallen angel, who tempts Adam and Eve into sin. Angels continue to appear in 35 out of 66 books, including at least 10 references in Revelation alone, which is in the last book of the Bible. 
I'm giving you these numbers only to illustrate to you that angels are not something that we can just cast off as fairy tales and fantasy. They aren't something that we can leave behind in the Old Testament or just forget about in the New Testament. Sadly, they can't just be little children with angel wings at Christmas. This fall, we spent a significant amount of time going through the Ten Commandments that were given to Moses on Mount Sinai. Now, something interesting that I learned from Warren Wearsby that I didn't see before is that it's stated in Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 2, that countless numbers of angels were present when God delivered Moses the law. Now, the receiving of the law and the law itself is an incredibly significant event. Warren Wearsby comments that this angelic delivery of the law could be one of the primary reasons that angels were so revered by the Jewish nation and the early church. This monumental event is mentioned again in the New Testament in Acts 7, 53, and in Galatians 3, verse 19, which both affirm that the law was given through angels. This would have been primary importance to the Jews because, and the early church because it's evidence that God communicates his thoughts, his desires, his requirements for humans through his messenger angels. Angels, then, are evidence of God's continuing intervention in human life. Angels are very, very significant spiritual beings. Their continuing intervention in human life means that God is continually involved in human life. Angels remind us that we matter to God. They're reminders that he's speaking to us and rescuing us, even though humans chose to permanently distance themselves from God by disobeying him, God continued to lovingly, patiently reach out to his people and be part of their lives. Angels are active in the life of God's people because God is active in the life of his people. And there's really no reason to believe that angels don't continue to be active today. The author of Hebrews likely didn't have to elaborate on angels the way that I have today, because when this text was originally written, the common knowledge and significance of angels would have been well known and understood. Whereas today, modern times with our expanding fantasy genres and our growing entertainment industries, even shifting worldviews of spirituality, that's really impacted what's common knowledge of a biblical view of angels. So by comparing the sun to angels, the author makes it clear that even angels cannot do for humanity what Jesus can. This text was written to a people undergoing great persecution. Now, I think persecution in 60 AD would have been pretty atrocious, don't you? I don't want to spend much time thinking about what followers of Jesus might have endured or the ways they might have been treated. And I know that there's some of you today who know very personally the cost of following Jesus in other places around the world today. And so maybe you, even better than the rest of us, can understand what this church needed and what they wanted 
was hope in their circumstances. Could they really trust Jesus? What they wouldn't have given for a message or a rescue from a mission from an angel. But the author is telling those readers to not go looking for deliverance in the wrong place. Jesus is superior to the angels and he accomplished what angels could never do. There is no authority on heaven or on earth that compares to Jesus. And this truth is as important for us today as it is for the original audience of this letter, because we too have tendencies in our struggles to look for hope or even deliverance in things other than Jesus the Son. Now this passage doesn't try and lower the significance of angels or the role that they have in representing and acting on behalf of God, but rather it makes clear that Jesus is so much more, so different. There is no better place to put our trust than in Jesus. Now this morning, I highly doubt that you walked in here today hoping that an angel would come and miraculously rescue you from a difficult situation in your life. But maybe, even subconsciously, you've put your hope in something that cannot do for you what only Christ Jesus can. I read a statistic this week. I want to share it with you. The average iPhone user touches their phone 2,600 times a day. And the highest 10% will touch their phone 5,400 times a day. Now, I am not immune to this statistic, so there is no judgment here. I'm just giving you some facts. But why do we do that? When you pick up your phone, what is it that you're looking for? What information or activity do you so value that you're drawn to it literally thousands of times a day? I recently heard John Mark Comer refer to our phones as our digital pacifiers. The millions of things that we can do, find, create, search for on our phones, they make it us feel better, even if it's for a short time. Is it possible that our recent growing dependence on instant technology is simply a symptom of our subtle comparison of the power of God in our lives to the power of something else? I don't have the answer, but I do have a suggestion. Let's, let's not let ourselves be drawn to react and respond to anything, earthly or spiritual, more times a day than we're drawn to think of and respond to Jesus. That means that if you're someone who's going to pick up and swipe your phone 5,000 times today, don't waste your time trying to make that number smaller. Instead, could we pray that God would make us think of him twice three times, a hundred times more often than we think of the powers that hold us to our gadgets. The author of Hebrews didn't say that angels weren't a big deal. They are a big deal. But Christ is bigger. 
And in the same way, I'm not telling you that the powers you know and understand, the ones that promise you some sort of dopamine hit thousands of times a day, aren't a big deal. They are. But Christ is so much bigger. Pray today that we become more aware of this constantly intervening God in order that we would trust his promises of hope, peace, sustenance 10 times, 100 times more than we do any other source of temporary relief. God wants to answer that prayer for us. So now we need to shift our focus. We've just briefly unpacked who angels are and what their purpose is in God's story. We're reminded that angels cannot do what Jesus did. Angels are not the hope that we look to for deliverance. Jesus is the greatest authority on earth and in heaven. And so we turn back to our passage and we ask the simple question, who then is Jesus? Last week in the opening four verses of chapter one, Pastor Adam gave us seven attributes that describe Jesus. And today we're going to look at seven Old Testament scriptures that communicate this clear difference, this distinction between angels and Jesus. And all of this is to demonstrate that Jesus is superior to angels. The hope and deliverance we have in Jesus is not found in any other authority in heaven or on earth. We can put all of our trust and all of our hope in Jesus. So if you're looking at your Bible with me, if you've got your Bible open, you'll see that the Old Testament quotes that we're going to go through, they're either indented or they're italicized in your Bibles. And in order to really lean into the author's intent with this passage, I think that we need to explore each one of these briefly. So let's do that together now, all for the purpose of getting this clearer picture of who Jesus is in light of what we know about angels. And trust me, I use the word know with great humility, realizing that so much of God's spiritual world is beautifully mysterious to us. Number one, Jesus is referred to as God's one and only son where angels are not. Now, these first two passages are quoted Old Testament scripture that give evidence to Jesus being God's son with a capital S, son. And in scripture, we don't see God referring to any individual angel with that familial term, son or daughter. That privilege is reserved only for Jesus. These two passages show us that these two entities, God and Jesus, share a form of intimate relationship that angels do not have with God. Number two, Jesus receives worship, whereas angels are created to worship. The next verse, verse 6, refers to Jesus as firstborn, which in this case doesn't mean born first, but it implies a person that's been given special privilege and inheritance, regardless of their birth order. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus is referred to as the firstborn of all creation. And in Deuteronomy 32, 43, God even commands the angels to worship Jesus. Now, angels don't worship created things. They worship God. So this communicates again that Jesus is God. Number three, 
Jesus has a body on earth and angels do not. This passage seems to be making a distinction about the form of angels which support their purpose. In this text, angels are like winds or spirits or flames who can temporarily take human form when they're on earth. Now, I think the comparison here would be the current incarnation of Christ. Christ didn't just temporarily look like a human. He was given the body of a human, and that body was even seen leaving with him when he rose from the dead. Jesus has a form that's superior to angels. Number four, Jesus sits on the throne where angels minister before it. Now, the distinction here is that of royalty, authority, and power. Now, use your imaginations with me and imagine this heavenly throne. Jesus sits upon it. Angels can only stand before the throne, but they can't share his seat of power, nor do they get called into it. Now, if this throne exists in physical form, I guess it would be in this heavenly realm where these angel beings are freely congregated. The throne is referenced in greater context in Revelation 22. Now, Charles Spurgeon is a late Christian theologian and a preacher. He gave a sermon in 1881, and it's called The Throne of God and the Lamb. And the entire sermon is dedicated to exploring this great heavenly throne where Jesus sits. So again, we're covering a lot of ground this morning, and so I just leave you with that title to sort of tempt your further studies of the heavens. Number five, Jesus is anointed, whereas angels are sent. Now, if you've spent any length of time hanging out with Christians in a church setting, you've probably heard the word anointed. But if you're like me, you've probably heard it in many different contexts and for different purposes. So let's try to get a little bit of clarity about what we mean by Jesus being anointed. Now, this was some language that was helpful to me. Number one is that Jesus is set apart as the only one who can do the task that he's been given. The next is that Jesus is empowered by God and the Holy Spirit for his task. And the last one is that Jesus is sealed with the approval of God to complete the task. So this special anointing that Jesus has, it does not extend to the angels, And angels can only participate in the joy of his work, but they cannot contribute to the task. Number six, Jesus is the creator, whereas angels were created. Jesus was not created. He always existed. The opening gospel of John refers to Jesus as being the word at the very beginning of time. This is so hard to wrap our minds around because we can really only possibly understand human bodies, right? Human bodies are born and then they grow and then eventually they fade away. Jesus is something else. The body that Jesus had on earth didn't mark the beginning of his existence. Whereas angels are not eternal beings like God. They had a definite created beginning. Number seven, Jesus commands, whereas angels obey. 
The final quote here is from Psalm 110.1 that references Jesus being at the right hand of the Father. Again, this is a position of highest power that no one else is given. And in the New Testament, we see this mentioned many times throughout the Gospels and the early church epistles. And I have references for you in Mark chapter 16, verse 19, and Ephesians 1.20. These accounts, they give us the image of the messenger angels carrying out the commands that Jesus has given because he is seated at the right hand of God. The sum of these Old Testament passages is a strong, thorough argument that Jesus must be superior to the angels. The author wanted to leave no doubt of that truth and cover every aspect of the superiority of Christ over the angels. So what about us today? See, everything that's said and written here is as true today as it was true the day it was written. The kingdom and the authority of Christ is absolutely sure and absolutely complete. Do you live your life operating under that reality? Or does it seem like really real on Sunday morning when you're sitting in church and then by Monday morning it's sort of at the back of your mind? If that's true, you are not alone. One of the questions that our ministry team has been wrestling with is how do we bring our whole bodies how do we bring our whole bodies into awareness of God's kingdom rather than just our mouths and our minds? You know? One of the reasons that spiritual practices are so important is because they help us to reorient our living around the reality of God's kingdom. Christians are not called to live how the world lives. We're called to live lives that are the salt and the light to this generation and the next. When we orient our lives around the priorities of Jesus, we're turning away from the priorities of the world. So that means regular rhythms of solitude, fasting, prayer, service to others. It should be woven into the fabric of our lives so that we can align ourselves with Jesus who is ruling and reigning on his throne. So this January, as you sit and you consider what kinds of 2024 goals and resolutions you could make, this is a wonderful time to consider the priorities of the king of the world that he showed when he was on earth. And we could reorient our lives around those same priorities. Jesus spent time with the poor, so must we. Jesus got away alone with the Father. So must we. And Jesus served his companions with humility. So must we. The reality that Jesus is above every other power on earth and heaven should challenge us to live differently this year so that we bring our whole bodies into alignment with what our minds and our mouths want to confess. Jesus is superior to all heavenly beings. Jesus should be the most captivating presence in our lives every day. So this morning we started by re-envisioning the angels. We put down those cute little white-winged haloed children and we picked up descriptions from scripture. 
We pictured thousands upon thousands of spiritual beings who are created to reflect the glory of God within creation. The messengers who have appeared at almost every significant historical event where God intervened for his people. And we use this as sort of a baseline to compare the supremacy of Christ, who's enthroned above the angels, reigning and ruling in power. So I think the last question that needs to be asked is, so what about us? Where do humans fit into God's story with Jesus and the angels? In the second chapter of Hebrews, the author quotes from Psalm 8, verse 4 to 6, which reads, You made them, humans, a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. See, people are infinitely valuable because an infinite God chose to value them, to love us. So through angels, God intervenes in a broken world to rescue and to provide for his people. Even when sin created this catastrophic chasm between heaven and earth so that God couldn't be among his people because of his goodness, his righteousness, one of the reasons that angels are so extraordinary is because they're one way of bridging that chasm between God and his people. But Jesus, taking on human form, changed everything. God re-entered the world to be with us even after we spent centuries rejecting him. This is the Christmas story that we celebrate year after year that Jesus is God in our midst. Jesus accomplished what angels could never have accomplished. Now, this story tells us a lot about the character of God, and it should tell us a lot about human worth. Humans were created to be loved by God. We were created out of love and created for love. In Genesis chapter 1, as soon as humans received life, all of creation was lavishly gifted to them to rule over. And if you're someone who marvels at nature or has ever stood awestruck at the beauty of God's world, just remember that that was all a gift for you. And even more incredible is the last verse of our passage today that says, Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? This verse gives us this strange and surreal purpose of angels. They serve us. You are the inheritor of salvation. You are the one that Christ's angels minister to. You are the one who has been crowned with glory and honor, and God has placed everything under your feet. The author of Hebrews was writing to a church that needed to be reminded that they could trust Jesus. Their deliverance in Jesus was sure, even in the midst of their struggle. The author reminds the church to cast their vision outward, to look broader and bigger at what Jesus had done for all of humanity. See, sometimes we have a way of reducing the gospel to just a story about a person, an individual, and most often that individual is me. And we sometimes reduce the story of me down to even a single lifetime. 
We expect the entire good news gospel to be lived out in our own single lifetime. And so when we experience trials, challenges, or even catastrophes, we look to God and wonder, what happened? Where is the rescue mission? Why aren't you leading me by the hand to safety like Lot or striking me so that my chains fall free like Peter? And maybe if we're totally honest, we would rather be rescued how the angels did it with power and gusto than how Jesus did it. Jesus rescued with humility and he died on a cross to give life. But the hope of the gospel of Jesus isn't about you or I, my lifetime or yours. It's so much greater. The hope of the gospel is the story of a God who has deeply loved his creation, his people, since the beginning of time. And since the beginning of time, God created a plan to lavish his love on his people, and Jesus Christ accomplished the plan. Deliverance has come. Salvation is here. Jesus is reigning in power. Jesus is the hope that supersedes all other powers and authorities on earth and in heaven. And his hope isn't just for one person. It's for all people of all tribes, of all nations, of all lands. The day-to-day challenges that we experience today are only a symptom of being loved by the most patient God who will not bring his justice until the time when all people have, have responded to his love. The book of, cha- of Peter, chapter 3, verse 8, it reorients our focus away from the challenges that we see today to not lose sight of the greater reality that exists and that's unfolding in God's timing. God's work in humanity continues today. He's patient with us. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, like some of us understand slowness, but instead he's patient with us not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And so I know there are many of us here today who are just like the early church, who read this letter and they're shouting, come Lord Jesus today. Restore your church today. Establish your kingdom on earth today. And when we don't get that, we forget that God's even coming. And we distract ourselves from our broken world by trying to fix everything with apps and gadgets and technology. Or we might do the same thing, but in the opposite way. We blame all the apps and gadgets and technology, and we try to restore the homestead model of society. I've done that too. See, these things are information pacifiers or activity pacifiers that ease us from our pain, and they distract us from the reality of our hurting lives. We focus our attention on our endless to-do lists. We get mad at politicians or we binge watch something on Netflix. Or we create a five-page family chore chart that's going to eliminate cleaning procrastination forever. Just me? It's fine. So this morning, let's just call that what it is. Let's make all the 2024 New Year's resolutions. And yes, I'm sure we're going to buy all the new apps. We're going to fill our bookshelves with all the latest self-help books. But in the midst of all that life, let's not lose sight of the gospel of Jesus. 
the good news that Jesus has come. He is alive and he is coming back to get you. There is no higher power. There is no greater promise. There is no fix, no cure, no scientific breakthrough, no political mashup, no technological advancement that we can compare to Jesus. Jesus is greater than all of these things. There is no higher power or authority on earth or in heaven. And his rule and reign today is sure, in spite of what your circumstances today would make you feel. So when February comes, it's only a couple weeks around the corner, and our long-term plans are going to start to feel improbable and probably less desirable. But we fix our eyes on the goals and we press ahead. Because we know that the things that we want, health, wellness, good energy, a cleaner house. They're all possible when we keep making those good decisions one day at a time. And the hope of the good news of Jesus is also a vision of the future. It's placing ourselves within the context of all human history in God's story and realizing that the hope that we, humanity, have in Jesus is beyond our day-to-day challenges. It's a story of love that began before the world was even created, and it will continue beyond each of our lifetimes until the day that God has chosen. But as we wait, there's nothing else that can offer the deliverance that Jesus has offered us. There is nothing greater than Jesus. So let's not lose sight of the big picture this year. Let's be faithful with the day-to-day practices that keep our minds and our bodies in alignment with the life of Jesus as we press on knowing with certainty that God has been in our midst, his power is unmatched, and his kingdom has come. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for coming to be with us that we celebrate at Christmas. Thank you for sending us your spirit so we can continually be in your presence until the day your kingdom comes on earth. Help us to daily acknowledge your reign in our lives through obedience to your word. Please help us to put all our trust and our hope in the certainty of your kingdom. To God be all glory in our lives today and forevermore. Amen.